You are listening to Friends of Europe's podcast. Don't miss our debates on global and European issues that span political, economic, social and environmental challenges and follow our website at friendsofeurope.org. So, good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back. I understand the uh, first session was very lively, so I'm hoping we'll have a similarly lively discussion uh, in this session. You've been talking a lot about international cooperation, and now we're going to bring the debate back to Europe. Uh, we have a very wide range of perspectives on our panel. So we have, we have a banker, we have a think tanker, we have a politician, we have an energy producer, and we have an energy optimizer. Yeah? So some quite different perspectives, and it's going to be interesting to see what they think on some of the issues that we're going to be discussing today. Now, um, unfortunately, because the earlier session rang over, and because some of our panelists have to leave, uh, the session is going to end at 12 o'clock, so we have a slightly shorter amount of time, which might mean that we're going to focus on maybe some fewer issues, but we're, we were already having a lively debate in the speaker's room, so I think uh, there's plenty to talk about still. Um, I understand we're going to start with some uh, quotes from Debating Europe, uh, which are going to appear on the screen. Ah, here we go, the first one. So the first one is, the cheapest energy is still nuclear energy, from Bobby in Bulgaria. Uh, and then uh, the next quote is, um, governments across the EU do not support green energy research. They are controlled by oil and gas companies. I'm not sure actually if they're saying there that the governments are controlled by oil and gas companies or if the research is controlled by oil and gas companies, but, you know, maybe we'll come back to that one. And then the final quote. I don't see the point in solving tomorrow's problems with today's technological resources. Tomorrow they'll be outdated and obsolete. I think that's quite, a, that's quite a hard quote, isn't it? I mean, you can only really work with what you have. But I think, obviously, technology is changing, and that is one of the things that we'll be uh, talking about on the panel. So, we have a bit less time than expected, so we're going to move straight on to it. And our first speaker is uh, Luca Constantino. He is from uh, the Italian company Eni. And each of the panelists will talk for five minutes, again, because we started a bit late, Please stick to the five minutes so we can get to the debate afterwards. Um, but Lika, please, you have the floor. Thank you. Thank you, Siobhan. I will be even shorter than that in my initial uh, statement. So just as, a, uh, as an introduction, is I, ENI is an oil and gas and renewable company, it's an energy company, uh, which has been working on, uh, on the oil, gas, and petrochemical sector for almost a century uh, now. Uh, what's interesting, I think, that's relevant to this uh, to this uh, to today is that uh, in 2015 we have created a new energy solutions department, and this uh, this department, which I which I had, is uh, actually uh, reporting to the CEO of VNI. So it's um, uh, it's actually a, a real business uh, line with a profit and loss responsibility. And I think this tells a lot about the commitment of our company with respect to uh, renewable uh, energies. Uh, so, uh, Energy Solution deals with uh, renewable energies, that's uh, why we're here, and that's also why uh, the European is actually so uh, important uh, uh, to us, the European Commission and, and everything which is happening here in, in Bruxelles. In the last years, we have been uh, supporting uh, very strongly the uh, Make, Power Queen, uh, Clean, Make Clean Power organization, uh, which is an organization made up of a number of oil and gas companies like ourselves and, and Shell and, and Total and Satoil, but also utilities and, uh, and uh, uh, other companies, uh, association groups uh, in, the, in the energy sector. So um, the reason for all this is that, uh, uh, in fact, if we look at the energy situation in Europe, uh, we can easily see that this is really far from being ideal in terms of energy mix and, and the overall situation. On one side, what we can see is actually coal is still the king because 80% uh, of the emissions of the power set sector still come from coal, despite coal providing only 25% of, of the power generation in Europe. So this is, this is obviously a big problem. And if, even if we see at the... Uh, 
uh, import-export data of, of Europe, we can see worrying uh, indications with uh, coal having doubled its import to Western Europe from the USA in the first six months of this year with respect to last year. So there are worrying things that the, the coal is still very strong and this, let's say, transition is not really happening in, in the right direction as, as we all uh, think, uh, we all believe. There's also an, another problem in Europe. We all know it's overcapacity, and this overcapacity is there because we haven't been able really to uh, drive off the most polluting and, and the, old, uh, the, mo the oldest uh, uh, power generation Europe, uh, units uh, in Europe. So there's lots of work uh, uh, to be done so far. But uh, um, what can we do for the future? Uh, there are two main uh, um, points here, the ETS regulation, which has been revised in, in, in this period, this year, and we, we think that this will certainly improve, this will certainly support, it will not be enough, we don't want to fool ourselves with that, the ETS even reform will not be enough, but certainly it will help uh, in, uh, in, the, you know, in the future. Of, of this transition. And the other thing is, of course, uh, the electricity market uh, uh, design reform. And here we have been advocating strongly for the 550, uh, let's say, number that also the international um, uh, investment banks uh, use as, as, a, as a benchmark for approving uh, financing uh, uh, new projects in the energy sector. So we strongly advocate that and, uh, and, and we believe that actually the future uh, will, will be mainly uh, based on gas and renewables. Uh, I think that uh, it, it's all clear to us that uh, in the long run we will all be renewables like we were 200 years ago when we used to use carriages and, and woods and stuff like that. What we don't know, of course, is how much we will take to, 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 to get there, who will rule this transition, which will be the prevailing uh, kind of uh, energy, uh, how much it will be centralized or, uh, or, or maybe distributed, but, but certainly uh, there will be lots of investment going into this. Um, we think that in this transition, uh, the, 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 uh, the mix offered by gas and renewables will certainly uh, in, in different parts of the world with different, uh, uh, let's say, uh, percentages will be the main important uh, uh, drivers. So that's, I think, 17 seconds before my time. Well done. Thank you. Well done. Thank you very much, Lika. So um, some of the main themes there are um, there is excess power generation capacity. How do you uh, incentivize taking some of the higher emitting capacity out? That's the 550 gram emissions performance standard you refer to, you refer to that and also to the market design and that is helpful because our next speaker is Kaya Kaz, she is an MEP in the European Parliament and she is a shadow rapporteur on the market design proposals. So uh, Kaya, can you give us some thoughts on uh, how those proposals are progressing? Thank you. I would actually start with the quote uh, uh, on um, uh, that was given that uh, we can't solve tomorrow's problems with uh, today's technologies. Oh, yeah. uh, well, uh, this is, of course, uh, right in some respect. And, and uh, I think uh, what we are working on in the European Parliament is also uh, to bring more uh, technologies, I mean, uh, digital technologies also uh, to the energy sector. And, and uh, uh, because when we talk about renewables, when we talk about uh, electricity market design, then what we need is we need more flexibility in the grid. And, and uh, digital tools can provide, or technologies can provide a lot of um, uh, solutions for uh, the problems that we, we currently have. Um, and, and of course, in the heart of all this are the smart grids, so um, uh, energy networks that can monitor the real-time energy flows and also, uh, also um, um, adjust uh, um, the energy consumption and, and everything that is uh, going on on the grid. And, and it is not so much that it's uh, only a playground uh, or a playing tool for the TSOs and the DSOs, but it's also a key factor for decarbonizing the economy, um, uh, what is uh, uh, the goal of the European Union. And um, uh, of course, uh, when we talk about uh, smart grids, um, then we talk about smart meters as well. And, and what is really surprising to me is that 
Uh, apparently, Estonia is currently the only country in the world where uh, there is 100% uh, deployment of smart meters. So, uh, why this is important, uh, it is that uh, how can you make uh, um, consumption decisions when you don't have the data? And I was really surprised in the beginning when we started this debate then uh, to learn that in some of the European countries, uh, consumers get their um, bill once a year. So how can you make any kinds of decisions uh, be more effective, save energy, when you actually don't know what you consume and when you do it and, and, and what price? So, so uh, customers are definitely another uh, part of this big picture. Um, um, and uh, coming to customers, what is also important is to, uh, like we talk a lot about empowering the customers and making them uh, more active and and by that I don't only mean that uh, we are making them uh, all prosumers but active customer also means that uh, can uh, make active decisions where to consume and how to consume and for that uh, the customer also needs information um, when we discuss the electricity market design uh, package then we also want to push um, the market to really work and what is also surprising for me is that not all uh, members of European Union think that market is a good thing. So, uh, first of all, I think we still have to get uh, rid of the price regulations, but we also have to uh, get rid of uh, the subsidies in the long end. So, we are not talking about, of course, uh, retroactively taking away the subsidies from the renewables, but considering that they are very competitive, uh, then uh, we, we need to make this market work. And again, coming from Estonia, I have a very good example. I was a, a chairman of the Economic Affairs Committee in, in Estonian Parliament when we uh, did the uh, electricity market design or liberated the market and got rid of the price regulation. And, and all the media was saying that, oh, the prices will go up, this will go out of hand. Uh, what actually happened was that, you know, there was more competition on the market. What competition does, it drives down prices. So our electricity price is currently 15% lower than it was uh, when we had the uh, uh, regulated price. So, uh, so definitely... Uh, we, we can uh, support that. And my last point is about connectivity. Of course, uh, in order to uh, uh, this electricity market to function, we need um, connectivity, and not only connectivity between the countries. Uh, there is a lot of problems uh, with uh, countries just looking at their own um, uh, region and, and trying to protect their own um, electricity producers. But I'm also talking about connectivity between the home and the grid, and, and different supply uh, um, appliances that uh, that is uh, uh, important for uh, the electricity market to be uh, modern and functioning. Thank you. Thank you, Kai. Thank you. And so, um, I presume everyone knows that Estonia is just an amazing leader in all things digital, and I'm not at all surprised that they are far ahead of everyone else on uh, smart meters. So you were talking there about sort of consumers optimizing their energy use. And now I'd like to turn to Patrick Labatt. He's Senior Executive Vice President for the Northern Europe Zone at Veolia. And uh, Patrick works for a company that optimizes energy on a slightly larger scale. So yeah, can you tell in us fact, more about that? Uh, good morning. Uh, in fact, Veolia is much more well known for the water treatment and waste management, but we are also active in energy, which represents 25% of our turnover, mainly in two different fields. First of all, the energy efficiency services and distributed networks. Regarding energy efficiency, I mean, we propose to our clients what, we, what is named as an energy performance contract, meaning a guarantee of energy which will be able to reimburse the investment at the beginning of the contract. So it's a win-win-win deal for the owner of the building, of the industry, because he can repay the investment by the savings of energy, it's a win for Europe because it's also a capacity for Europe to reach the objective of reduction of energies. And it's also a win for environment because each uh, megawatt hour of energy saved is less CO2 emission, of course. Just one answer to the previous question, which is, who, what is the cheapest energy? The cheapest energy is the energy we save. 
Um, okay, so regarding the, uh, in it, the distinguishing networks, what's it, what, what's one thing which is important to, to understand is that we have in Europe, some countries, we are driven mainly by coal due to economical and social environment. District heating is a tool which can allow them to reduce the, emission, the CO2 emission even if they are continuing to use coal. <coughs> and we strongly request from EU to support the, uh, any incentive to research and development regarding the CO2 capture, which can be a solution to uh, reduce the impact of coal. Uh, one thing also important is that uh, there is a lot of industry which are uh, exothermic, meaning that they are, they are producing heat which is not used. And by using the distributing network, we can also recover the waste heat coming from incineration plants, coming from industries, or coming even from buildings like data center. So there is a lot of mix of solutions which can be implemented in Europe in order to reduce the CO2 impact. Thank you, Patrick. So um, we heard there about how to optimize on a slightly larger scale. And again, coal comes up as something that maybe technology can, can help with. And now we're going to move to uh, Matthias Buck, who is head of EU Energy Policy at Agora Energiewende. And uh, he is the think tanker, which is a word I just made up. And uh, your um, think tank is, has done a lot of work on how to reduce emissions from the European power, session, uh, power sector. So please, give us your thoughts. Thank you. Um, perhaps to start, I worked before moving to Agora Energiewende, I worked for more than a decade in public administration different functions. And in 2013, I had the opportunity to work in like the, the, the powerhouse of the, 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 the group of people driving the German energy transition mm -hmm. in the German government. In 2013, what they were all very much scared about was costs. What are the costs of the tra transition? They're spiraling out of control. If we cannot contain the costs, we lose legitimacy and support. Today, the discussion is all about how do we keep up with China, with California, with others that are moving faster, which are more privileged um, in reinventing the energy system because they do not have so many vested interests and um, legacy investments into a different power system. Um, so for the German energy transition, and this very clearly now will play out in the, in the coalition talks, is one of the key challenges, how do we move from coal that we currently still have is still dominating uh, to a clean energy um, future in Germany. So it's not about can we afford it, but do we want to do what we can afford? Uh, so the discussion has really changed. Um, and this does translate as well to the European level. Um, from a, a think tank perspective, the targets on which we're operating are insufficient. Um, looking at our commitments under the Paris Agreement, Europe would need to contribute more to reducing carbon emissions than we currently have on the books. Um, we are um, hoping that there will be a space, potentially when the new commission takes office, to actually increase target ambition. Um, we've seen a very encouraging signal from the newly formed Dutch government that they would be willing to support 55% greenhouse gas emission reductions by 2030 if there is will to do so um, throughout the EU. I think that's an important point. Um, if you want to decarbonize uh, more deeply and faster, you need to know where you're heading. Um, there's a lot in the clean energy package that links to robust planning ahead. Um, there is a risk that uh, these opportunities uh, for robust planning ahead are um, diluted in sovereignty concerns, particularly in the council. This is what's currently happening. There's, there's not much appetite by member states to really commit to long-term planning. The ones that do it, like France, Germany, UK, believe why would we do it in light of EU legislation? The ones that have not done it so far might not be willing to do it. And um, so there is a, a not so helpful discourse on how do we actually get everyone to do a robust planning ahead, how to decarbonize um, fully by mid-century, which is necessary. The second point, this was mentioned, we have an issue of overcapacity 
in Europe. Um, so significant generating overcapacity, um, baseload capacity, high carbon capacity, very old capacity in some cases, depreciated and cheap capacity. Power market prices are depressed. There is very little um, incentive from the market to invest into clean energy alternatives, to invest into demand side resources, to lift the flexibility um, options um, that um, will come with um, the, the clean energy um, package. How do we move beyond that point? As Agora, um, we have been advocating for some time that because the emissions trading system does not offer sufficient incentive to take coal out of the market, that governments will need to do more at national level. And there needs to be a space, an enabling context at EU level to help governments that want to move out of coal more quickly um, to do so. The Netherlands, again, has um, indicated they want to uh, close coal by 2025 now. The UK has a similar commitment. Um, France has made uh, such announcements. Uh, Germany will now discuss this. So we are seeing a lot of moving into that direction. The third point is on financing the new um, technologies that we need at lowest possible cost. As I said, it is, has become very affordable, but whether you really get a very low-cost investment very much depends on is the market ready, are uh, the conditions, uh, the framework conditions for your investment right, only if there's a low risk profile, if the risk from an investor perspective can be controlled as an investor, there is no policy intervention, um, the markets are evolving in a certain way as, as we are foreseeing it in the legislation, then you can comfortably have a very low um, cost investment into clean energy alternatives and uh, there is still something that needs to be done um, in the package to actually smoothen this uh, low cost transition and we believe that in order to have a low cost um, investment environment we will need to continue indicating to investors that if unforeseen risks in the future would come their way that they are not left alone and the business case is not undermined. Otherwise, it will become too costly. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Matthias. And that is another very neat segue to our next speaker, the banker, who uh, can talk to us about um, investment risk and how to keep uh, investment risk in renewables low. So, Edward, please. Great. Thanks, Siobhan. And, and firstly, apologies. I'm going to croak my way through this presentation. Um, I just woke up this morning and uh, my, my voice was uh, departing. But I wanted to be here today um, and um, pick up on, on the panel discussion and say a few words really about, um, as, a finance, as a financier, what it's like now when we're seeing this, this new wave of, if you like, low-cost renewable energy projects coming partly towards EIB, the European Investment Bank, but I think broadly towards banks um, out there in Europe at the moment. And the big question is, will they get financed? And I think the, the short answer, somewhat flippant, but is that um, these, are, these are definitely challenging to finance on a, on a non-recourse or project finance basis. Um, but at least some of them are credible. And that is already quite striking if, if you think about where we are today compared to 18 months ago. We're seeing offshore wind at 54.5 euros a megawatt hour in, in, the, in the Netherlands. Um, you know, we're seeing onshore wind at below 50, solar below 50. Um, the rate of change in the market is extraordinary. And okay, this is well known, but I want to come to this now from the view of a financier. And I really want to reiterate the, the need for, you know, if the objective, the policy objective is to maintain and sustain investment. There is a need for the, to continue renewable energy support schemes, even if the price at which they clear is very low. And I want to just explain that. So step by step. It, there, are, there is some misunderstanding out there because people say, well, look, hang on, we're seeing these auctions now clear at phenomenally new, you know, record levels in the 40s, 50s euros a megawatt hour. 
And that seems to be the you know, nominal, a nominal offtake price for 15 years. That's fairly close to what a lot of people think wholesale prices should be, ought to be, might be. Um, it's possibly even enough that that would be the value that the project can extract as a renewable energy producer from within the wholesale market. So then people join the dots and say, well, we don't need renewable energy support schemes anymore. And it may even be the case ex post that we don't. But of course, as a financier, you're looking at this ex ante. And in the absence of a renewable energy support scheme, you are confronted with exposure to the risk of future wholesale electricity prices. And that's a pretty hard thing to swallow for, for banks. I think it's, it's, it's inevitably difficult for banks. It's not a risk they can mitigate. Um, it's at best going to be expensive to ask banks to, to, to swallow that too much. Traditionally, banks have not done it. They've lost money in the dash for gas. Those who did in the old world, when we thought we understood the dynamics of wholesale price uh, formation, many lost, lost money in the dash for gas in the 90s and, and the early 2000s. So the key message is, um, I think, if we're looking to sustain that investment, um, you know, this move to competitive auctions is fantastic, that's clear, um, both for electricity consumers and the long-term health of the planet. Um, the, you know, that, that, that framework, however, needs to be um, maintained if we're looking to sustain investment, because um, without it, I say, I think at the moment, the idea that we can, which is sometimes sort of, you hear this, the idea of being muted in, in, in wider circles. Um, I don't think we're there yet to get rid of renewable energy support schemes. I do think, and it's a very upbeat message, that we're very close to being at the point where there's very little additional um, financial flows coming above and beyond what's coming out of at least a, a well-designed um, wholesale market. And on that note, I stop. Thank you. <laughs> I thought I had a microphone there. Thank you, Edward. Um, so essentially, um, the idea is you keep the framework of subsidies in place and you expect, because they are now market-based subsidies, that actually there won't necessarily be large transfers of money from state to, to project developers. But the knowledge is there if they need it. It's there if they need it, if the market changes. Now, Luca, um, I know any has been investing in renewables. Um, what, is, what is the driver for an oil and gas company like any to, to go into renewables? I mean, is it subsidies? Is it the investment framework? What is it? Well, first of all, we are an energy company. We're not an oil and gas, gas company, okay? Things are changing, and even though I think there is a, still this perception that oil and gas companies still produce oil and gas, sometimes they accuse us to produce coal even, this is not the case anymore. I mean, things are changing, uh, not only for, for us, but also for other oil companies, and, and I would say especially a European oil company. I think, uh, uh, the, the, so the driver is there. I think the point is how you, you go about it, because the, the, the biggest problem that oil and gas companies have to confront when they step into the renewable space is that the poor guy of the renewable space, let's say me, you have to compete with the uh, projects which have much higher return on, on investment, okay, like the upstream business, for example. So you have to build a case which has to be higher than the 6 or 7%, uh, which is normally the, the rate of return of, 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 of these renewable projects. And that's the challenge, but that's also where the opportunity comes from. So, in fact, in ENI, we are trying to focus on renewables as a sort of complementary business to the existing core business. It's not something which is in opposition to that or alternative to that. I'm not uh, creating a fracture within the company between myself and the old uh, guard, you know, the black guy on the other side. But we're trying to work together with uh, like uh, large-scale integrated projects which have also a big component of renewable in it. And I'm, I'm not talking about cleaning our operations, which like improving the efficiency of our traditional operation or reducing the emission of our traditional operation. No, this is done. 
this is part of our you know normal business i'm talking about something new uh, devising new business model uh, stretching the, the value chain and and inventing basically uh, new projects that have also an important component of renewable in, into this and just to give you a flavor i mean we we have uh, uh, several hundreds of millions of investment for the next two years in this kind of projects. We have uh, a pipeline of more than 100 projects as of today. So it's a fairly material business. We see uh, an incredible opportunity in this uh, energy transition uh, phase. And, uh, and I think that the same percept perception is also the perception of other oil companies, even though each oil company has a different uh, business model, let's say. They're moving in a sort of a scattered way, okay? We have our own vision, but I think that all of us, we're all convinced that this energy transition has a fantastic opportunity, especially for oil and gas uh, business. I, I, I can make, expand on that, I will stop. <laughs> we'll vote, so thank you, thank you. Okay, so um, I'm just going to pick up on the energy efficiency angle there and bring, uh, bring Patrick uh, back in. We're going to come back to renewable subsidies. But, um, uh, so Luther is saying the oil and gas companies, they're already good on efficiency. They do that anyway. How is Veolia, what is Veolia doing to help improve efficiency? And do you see differences between what's happening in Northern Europe and other parts of Europe? Um, as you presented ourselves as energy optimizer, we are not an energy producer at all. We are what we call an energy saver. Uh, and it's true that in Northern Europe, in the Northern part of Europe, there were the leading countries in terms of district heatings and renewable energies. For example, in Sweden, the total part of energy is 42% based on renewables. And we, if we can compare to the average of Europe, uh, EU28, it is 13%. So it's really in advance. And they are also much more in advance in terms of eating networks. Why? Because Denmark started after the oil crisis in 73 by creating, in order to create some independent independency of the uh, energy producer, I mean oil and gas, they created their own networks heated by incineration mainly, and the other country around them started to create their own districting networks, and here mainly based in biomass in Sweden. What we want to do in Veolia is to export best practice, which we are developing in country, to others. And if I come back to the buildings management, and buildings is important because it represents 40% of the total consumption of energy in Europe. So in building management, by exporting the principle of EPC contract, energy performance contract, we can first decrease the consumption of the uh, building by itself, which is the greenest energy. All the energy we save is the greenest energy. We can also re improve, optimize the way to produce energy on site. I mean, improve and optimize the efficiency of production. And we can also improve the energy mix by using the best available fuel close to the location which is important also to avoid transport and so on. So it's exactly what we do. Uh, in terms of uh, um, APC contracts, we are responsible for the design and for the works, to, for the internal renovation. We are responsible for the savings of energy, meaning that if we do not reach the expected and the guaranteed savings of energy, we pay the difference in order to secure that the to the uh, owner of the building that the investment will be repaid during the duration of the contract with the savings of energy. Um, well, one thing which is uh, important is that uh, we, we really want to, to guarantee the client. That is the main commitment we have, meaning that we have a mechanism of bonus, bonus and malus, that if we overachieve the energy guarantee, we are paid with a bonus. And if we are under the guarantee, we pay the difference. Okay, so it sounds like you have a, a sort of system that's not dissimilar to a market-based renewable subsidy. You know, you are giving people a long-term reason to feel secure in their investment decision. Um, so uh, I want to come back to uh, the question of renewable subsidies again uh, and come back to Kaya. I mean, um, within the market design discussions, this has obviously come up. So uh, what's, wh how do you feel the discussion in the parliament going on what should be happening with renewable subsidies? 
Uh, well, the negotiations have uh, have just started, so I, I can't uh, say uh, what is the end uh, result of those. But, but uh, of course, there are very different views uh, across the um, across the member states as well as across the uh, political groups, um, and uh, and I think. Um, well, uh, one side really favours the market to work and, and uh, all the uh, subsidies are distorting the market. Uh, and by, by that, I'm, I'm not saying that uh, there is uh, no support needed when there is market distortion, really. Um, but, uh, but when already it is shown that um, maybe the market could work without it as well. And, and there, uh, of course, you have to have some kind of uh, motivation to, uh, to make the investment into the renewables. And, and one thing that we are discussing Discussing is is of course the renewable energy targets, and this is not under the electricity market design, but uh, under the renewables energy directive. And this is a very whether these targets uh, for the member states are binding, uh, should be binding or not. Uh, and and of course there is a very fine balance between you know pushing the member states too far, but at the same time if we don't have any binding targets, then we probably don't. Uh, achieve the goals we want to achieve as well. So, so um, I think this is, um, this is definitely um, the uh, problems that we, we're going to face. And, and uh, one other thing is that uh, when it comes to uh, all kinds of uh, subsidies, uh, and support schemes, uh, and, and also we are discussing a lot about support schemes uh, for goal because, uh, because they are more hidden uh, than the subsidies uh, for renewables, and, and I, I think the market should be fair uh, as well. So if we are going to get rid of uh, the subsidies um, that are written in the laws for the renewables, we also have to get rid of the subsidies that the governments are uh, given uh, uh, from the their budgets uh, to uh, coal uh, in in some countries. So so there has to be this um, uh, level level playing field. Thank you, Kaya. And I saw Matthias nodding there. And much as I hate the panel to agree, um, perhaps um, Matthias, you can. Um, uh, one of the things that we've mentioned, Luca mentioned, and Kaya has mentioned, is the emission performance standard uh, for capacity mechanisms. This 550 gram, which is taken from a European investment bank. Uh, idea for um, how to decide what plants to invest in. So how do you see, um, what do you think the impact of that, of such a standard would be and how would it, how would it change, if it doesn't happen, what will be the consequences? Perhaps. Predicting the future is never easy. Um, so perhaps to, to explain uh, what we are discussing, um, the Commission has proposed that in context of the electricity market regulation, um, if a member state decides to put in place a capacity market, meaning um, a, a capacity mechanism, meaning um, you're paying um, generators in the market not only for um, being there, but for being there when you need them. Um, and you give uh, particular uh, financial support for that purpose. Now, what the Commission has proposed is to uh, limit the capacity that can be contracted in a capacity mechanism to capacity not generating more um, than 550 gram CO2 emissions per kilowatt hour produced, which effectively uh, reduces um, most types of coal generator generating capacity to participate in a capacity mechanism. Now, um, the argument for this is, of course, climate protection. And what's behind it? Behind it um, is that uh, if you're looking into um, the development of um, energy markets in Europe, increasingly member states are resorting to capacity mechanisms to prevent the lights going out. Um, so less and less um, transactions happen through the free market and there is a proliferation of capacity mechanisms. Now, this is driven by, I would say, two 
factors. One factor being just uncertainty about future developments because so many th things are changing at the same time. The second thing is incumbent interests because we're moving to um, a world with more and more um, renewables um, that do need a power system that is more flexible. So less and less base load, traditional base load capacity is not as profitable today as it was in the past. Which means that um, the incumbent generators are less and less profitable, so they're turning to governments to help them and saying, if you're not supporting us through capacity payments, we will have to shut down, lights will go out. So that's the basic uh, story being told. There is a risk, there's a risk, and then I'm coming to, um, to an end, and the, the risk that indeed there may be a case where um, you need a capacity intervention in order to um, prevent the lights from going out um, if the market investment signal is not sufficient. However, there's also a very strong risk that capacity payments will be used to artificially prolong the lifetime of high carbon assets that have been actually reached the end of the lifetime. As I said, we are in a situation of overcapacity in Europe, very significant overcapacity. One of the reasons why generators are not earning sufficient returns is precisely because there's overcapacity. The market is oversupplied, prices are low, less income, i.e. less profit. And then you need a capacity payment. So there's a risk if you do not um, prevent uh, some high carbon capacity from um, participating capacity markets um, that you are locking in coal subsidies um, for the next few years. And we are not in a situation where we can still afford that, looking okay. at climate protection. Okay, Thank just you. before Kaya comes back, I just want to warn, we are about to move to the question and answer session after Kaya speaks. So be thinking of your questions and uh, we will come to you very shortly. So Kaya, you want to come uh, back? About capacity mechanisms, uh, as, as you probably know, there were 3,000 am amendments yeah. to the uh, regulation as well as the directive. And, and uh, on the capacity mechanisms, the amendments go on all the directions. There are amendments that delete the capacity mechanisms altogether because, you know, uh, how, how you really make sure that they are temporary and not used uh, um, uh, when they're not supposed to be used. And, and there are, you know, regarding the limit, uh, there are things, uh, amendments that delete the limit. There are amendments that go, you know, 400, 300, 200. So, uh, so um, this is uh, definitely going to be a very uh, difficult um, debate. But I think what is important here, and, and now I'm speaking on, on my behalf, I can't speak on behalf of the European Parliament, as I said, we don't have the um, outcome yet, but uh, but uh, first of all, we we have to make sure uh, if we really go for the capacity mechanisms, and I'm not sure that we really need them because, as you say, there is overcapacity in the market. The problem is that the member states are really looking, you know, uh, in terms of their energy uh, supply or security of supply, they're looking within their member states in the borders, whereas we have a lot of interconnections. Uh, there came um, um, a report from Acer, the agency. Uh, for uh, for energy uh, that said uh, showed uh, the capacity that different interconnections between different countries have and how much these are used and I remember I don't remember all the numbers but I remember the interconnector between the Poland and Germany um, is zero well, the capacity is there, but it's not used. Uh, and between Denmark, where is a lot of renewables, and, and Germany, the capacity used is 12%, because the Germany, Germany just doesn't want the capacity there. And, and of course, for that, uh, to overcome that problem, uh, European Commission has um, uh, suggested this uh, ROCS, regional operation centers. We are probably moving to regional cooperation centers. But what is important is to make the um, uh, make the member states really cooperate on the basis of uh, logic of, uh, of the energy grid or electricity grid, not, uh, not really on the basis of the borders of, uh, of countries. Okay, so uh, cooperation between uh, European member states, again, something that needs to be worked on. Um, do we have any questions in the room? Raise your hand. Okay, and the microphone is coming. We take the lady here at the first and then the gentleman here on the left. It's coming from your right. Uh, 
Thank you for a fascinating discussion so far. I apologize for my voice. I also have a sore throat. Um, Leah Ashampong from WWF European Policy Office. Um, my question is for the gentleman from Eni. Uh, so on the last panel, a lot of the panelists were talking about the need to move towards a decarbonized world by 2050. So I wonder what are Eni's long-term plans for its energy mix? And I ask this in the context of working towards a decarbonized world and Europe within that, but also in the context of avoiding stranded assets. Thank you. And then the gentleman here. Oh, okay. Russell Mills from SIF. Sorry, a bit loud. Um, if you look at most uh, low-carbon pathways, there's a constant recurring theme of the need for electrification as a mitigation tool. So medium term, the future for electricity should be very bright. Now when you dig a little bit deeper and look at the demand dynamics, there's some bigger questions. For example, 20 years from now, most of us will probably be driving electric vehicles. Will we be owning them or sharing them or will there be some other kind of business model? So understanding those demand dynamics is crucial to knowing what kind of infrastructure you need to build. So, so my question is, what's being done in the policy world to really better understand these demand scenarios? I hear a lot about supply side, very little about demand side. And then the second half of the question would be, what kind of policy measures are needed to manage these consumption emissions? Because in Europe, by the way, those are still growing very rapidly. Thank you. And, and there was another question, gentlemen there. Um, Luke Bass with ICM. Um, it was interesting to see that there was already a debate starting about or going on about reducing the subsidies for renewable energy and then some point from the bank I think that it's maybe not that a good idea. In some cases definitely is and it's interesting we have an intel intelligent discussion about those subsidies and where they could be reduced if they're not necessary anymore. Now I'm coming back to my question in the first panel which wasn't answered the one on the, the famous fossil fuel subsidies. And my, I'm rephrasing my question now. Instead of asking, why do you think they are still increasing? I'm asking you the question, why is it so difficult to talk about how to reduce these? Okay, so um, Luca, would you like to start about um, Eni's plans for decarbonization to 2050? Yes. First of all, let me, let me state uh, up front that uh, as he and I, we fully uh, support the conclusion of the COP21 in Paris. So we actually were uh, looking at our projection in, in terms of decarbonizing our energy mix. Uh, as of today, just to give an example, our energy mix is 50% oil and 50% uh, uh, gas plus, plus some renewables, but uh, in, in the long term, our uh, portfolio is evolving more and more toward gas and less, uh, and less oil. So, uh, so in this sense, uh, there is a progressive decarbonization of, uh, of our portfolio. In addition to that, as I said before, there is this growing uh, segment uh, which is related to renewables. And we also have lots of activities in terms of uh, molecules, not only electrons, so decarbonizing through, uh, through let's say, chemical uh, processes rather than uh, electrons. Um, in, in terms of stranded asset, is, as, you know, in term, for us, for ENI, we don't have that problem because uh, our uh, long-term plan is fully compliant with all the projection from IEA and we have no stranded asset whatsoever. And, uh, of course, in the long term, this could be an issue for any company uh, still looking at oil and gas as, the, as a future gener the generation mix. But this is not the case for us. As I said, our generation mix is evolving, is evolving towards a decarbonized system. So I don't think this is going to be an issue for, for us. Okay, and the next question was about um, policy work on future demand scenarios. And I see Kaya yeah. ready to go. Yeah, uh, <laughs> uh, well, uh, we have a lot of uh, discussion of the demand side as well, and especially demand side uh, flexibility, so different tools to manage the demand side. Of course, what we also see, we see a strong lobby against this, and there are very interesting arguments uh, used, uh, used to that you know we, we shouldn't go into this um, but uh, but I think uh, of course we can't predict uh, all the consumption that there's going to be but 
uh, what is uh, what is uh, uh, important is to leave room for innovation also on the demand side flexibility uh, uh, flexibility side uh, so that uh, that there are different uh, um, companies that uh, provide services that you know uh, make the um, and make the grid uh, flexible enough to to cope with the uh, demand side uh, changes uh, as to the gentleman uh, regarding the why is it so uh, difficult to reduce this uh, well uh, first of all i think as um, you know um, uh, the countries that use fossil fuels usually have uh, mines where are people working? So, so if you reduce, uh, um, you know, the fossil fuels use, it means that these coal mines or or oil shale like we have in Estonia will be shut down. And the mines are usually in uh, regions of these countries which are not that uh, maybe rich. Uh, so, so the problem with these people, uh, their education, all this is, uh, you know, it's a huge problem. And in terms of numbers, I think, you know, there are there is this long-term view and the short-term view and of course uh, of course the long-term view is that we have to get rid of the fossil fuels uh, and and in long-term view I think everybody agrees because you know uh, the climate change and everything but there's also the short-term view and the short-term view is that these people are going to lose their jobs and now politicians who are elected for four years five years uh, they have to be answer uh, answering to um, these people like we are going what what's happening to these people so so if you don't have a good solution on that side is also like you are also not reducing the um, uh, it's very difficult to go very pro uh, uh, pro uh, renewables totally if you have those minds so it is that simple and I think, Patrick, you want to come yeah, in? Yeah, I strongly support what you said regarding the problem of employment, which is linked to coal mining. If, I, I don't believe there is a unique solution. There is a lot of mixed solution which has to be implemented in parallel. Uh, when you say that you ha we have to reduce the subsidy for uh, renewable energies, maybe some of them has to remain due to the fact that we can mitigate the impact of coal, especially when we burn it with biomass. So biomass can be a, a, a renewable energy which can be continued to be subsidized in order to progressively transfer from coal to biomass because it can be mixed together in the same boiler. Another thing is that if we propose to a, a country in, Northern Europe, in Central Europe uh, a, a way to reduce the impact of CO2 by continuing burning coal, especially with the capture of CO2, it could be also a way to protect the employment and, the, I mean, and all the social aspects of these countries, but also to protect the environment by reducing the impact of CO2 in the, in, of the impact of coal in terms of CO2 emission. Okay. Can I check? Are there more questions in the room? Excellent. Let's keep the questions coming. So there's a gentleman here in the front row and a gentleman there in the beige jacket. Thank you. My name is Peter Wojcik. I'm with the European Chemical Industry. I have a question to Matthias uh, with regard to the German Energiewende. Um, when I look at the figures, of course, Germany has increased uh, renewables uh, capacities drastically. Also, the share of renewable um, electricity generation. Nevertheless, Germany has failed to meet its own uh, emission reduction targets, and it is going to fail also in future, as the numbers say. And this is happening against the background of, I don't know, 20 billion euros per year spent on support schemes uh, by the German citizens. And it also has side effects on neighboring countries uh, where um, excess uh, renewable energy is dumped when, when there is too much of it. At the same time, we have had a cold winter last year with little wind and no sun. And uh, I've read a publication that even if you triple the current capacity of, um, of German renewables, you would hardly meet 20% of the German demand. Has this challenge of uh, not meeting the emission reduction targets and meeting the energy needs, is there a solution in the pipeline? Thank you. Thank you. And the gentleman in the base jacket there. 
My name is Hans van der Loof from the Institute of Integrated Economic Research. Um, I, I share the, the dilemma of virtually all the panelists that there are indeed short-term perspective and long-term perspective, and that of course is true. The question though is, are they the same? And if I have to listen to people who are brain experts, they say, well, you will always lose because the short term will always win from the long term because basically we don't have free will. We are just the victims of two drivers in our own brain and that is fear and greed. And if I'm about to lose my job, then I'm afraid. And if I want to keep my job, then it's greed. And so the rest doesn't count. However, we are equipped with a rather big brain. We've got intelligent leaders like you are and quite a number of people here. And the question I would like to ask well, of course, to the panel, but in principle to everyone in the room here. Is there not a way whereby we can do three things and avoid even worse things to happen than losing a job? And the first thing is, let's get real about reality. And a lot of people do not really understand reality or it's shallow. The second is, you know, get honest. And I think you have been honest because you point out those things. So the question is, you know, what can we do that we actually change that paradigm because the time is ticking. We now have got had many elections in several European countries where populists actually came in quite big. If our leaders, and I include you as leaders as well, whether you're in industry or politics, do not address these concerns properly, we will not have a wave of populism in 2022. We'll have a tsunami of populism. I lived in Japan for six Sorry, years. Sorry, can I just check? Are you so, going to ask a question about yeah, something so what, energy what, specific? No, what they propose to do, how we can really come to a best solution, acknowledging the reality that oh. there is short-term perspective and long-term perspective. But a best solution for what? To actually overcome the dilemma. Because if we will only go for the short-termism, you know, we will fry our future. Okay, thank you. Okay, so, Matthias. So there's a question, there were a number of points I would like to say something on, but I... Yes, uh, at this point, uh, the German energy transition is um, an incomplete um, project, I would say, in the sense that we do have all kinds of uh, targets and mileposts, but particularly the greenhouse gas emissions target is not uh, kept. Now, the background to this is that the German government has set itself a greenhouse gas uh, reduction target which is significantly more ambitious than um, the target it would have, uh, it has to take under the burden sharing agreement in Europe. Meaning that um, in a context where the European emissions trading system is um, underperforming significantly, um, so not uh, giving prices uh, that we had expected, when the system was set in motion, um, that there is no uh, signal from the uh, ETS to um, reduce emissions, particularly in the power sector. So what has been happening uh, in the German power system transition in the past years is that we have increased um, through um, uh, subsidies, um, kind of, uh, renewable energy support schemes, uh, fairly um, successfully. Um, uh, the, the share of renewable electricity coming to the system. We're now at about 30%. Um, but at the same time, because we have open markets, increasingly open and connected power markets in Europe, um, the um, baseload coal capacity has stayed in the system and indeed um, we have pushed gas out of the system. But this is not, not a result very much of the German energy transition, but of the um, uh, missing link um, which is the European emissions trading system that is underperforming uh, very strongly and where we really need to, to take see some additional measures or there will be some national measures needed. Now the point, um, the second point you, you raised, so come, come back to that, I'm, um, I would expect um, the new German government that's just being formed so potentially we, we get this Jamaica coalition, so Christian Democrats, uh, Liberals and Green Party uh, to form the new German government. Um, <clears throat> one of the key issues relating to how to continue the energy transition is how to deal with coal in Germany. Um, Agora Energiewende, um, we made a, a comprehensive um, proposal for phasing out coal in Germany in February last year. Um, this proposal has been picked up a lot um, 
in our uh, public discourse on the energy uh, transition. And now we are at a, at a point where the discussion is not about the if, but by when. Um, the only, the only uh, opposition actually is from some, some trade union uh, defending for, um, I mean, fighting for, for jobs in the mining business. And, but all the other um, voices in the room actually support some regulated phasing out of coal if the emissions trading system uh, does not deliver. Now, yeah. the looking into the future high-res world, um, all the, uh, the scenarios that we see suggest this is possible. Um, there are, as usual, if you do uh, modeling and scenarios, uh, questions on which choices come in by which time and how much it will cost. But in principle, there is no question that you can have um, security supply, very high share of renewable um, energy in the mix and uh, at very affordable prices. Okay. I don't know, Edward, if you wanted to come in at all, but I see... Oh. Come in, if you want to come in briefly, because you've not said yeah, as much I'm, as everyone else. <laughs> I'm, I'm happy to jump in on, I, I'm going to be a little bit unfair and paraphrase one of the questions as renewables cost too much and there's not much value in them anyway because you still need lots of conventionals, which is a slightly unfair paraphrase. But I want to just pick that up because we spend a lot of time talking to TSOs, DSOs uh, and governments about um, their investment needs. And, you know, it's, it is clear that without storage if we move to very high shares of intermittent renewables, the additional value of another megawatt on a system with lots of gigawatts, where the production is all correlated, is very low. So where have we got to now? Well, I think two things. We have, I, I'm going to be upbeat today and say we've solved the problem. That the, the, the question we had five years ago was, can renewables produce at a cost close to conventionals without a very high carbon price? I'd say that question is now more or less resolved. We're now into the second phase, which is how can we extract value from renewables? Because you're absolutely right, if we don't solve storage, we have a problem. Or the grid integration problem is, is, is difficult. I think there are very interesting examples. Go to Ireland. The, the island of Ireland is as an isolated system is very interesting, actually, in how the grid operator deals with very high shares of, of renewables. But the storage is the next big thing. And I think there's two dimensions very quickly on that. One, um, I, I personally and, and also professionally, I mean, on day-night storage, the developments in electric vehicles is tremendously exciting. And I hope in 18 months' time, when we're all back, we'll be talking about the big changes in electric vehicles with the point being that the market design is crucial to, to, to get that at least cost. Where the RDI question really is, is around the seasonal storage. That's not solved, more or less. And that's, that's fascinating and how we, how we, how we get there. So that's, those are the big questions that we need to now grapple with. Okay, and Kaya, if you come uh, back quickly, and yes. then there is one more question I'm going to come back to. But Kaya. On, the, on the paradigm change, <laughs> it's a very difficult question, of course, uh, because, uh, because voters don't look uh, the long-term uh, way, usually they, they also see the short-term. But, but, I, but, I, but I agree that it's also like Plato already said that the role of the government is to educate people. So you have to be honest and talk about these things. And I think the key uh, to this is to, uh, because fear, uh, I, I agree that people have fears, but you can't say that don't be afraid. You, you have to uh, understand their fears because fear is too strong emotion to just overcome. Uh, so, uh, so what are their fears and, and provide alternatives to, uh, to overcome their fears or show that we can, we can find another way? So definitely not uh, littling their problems because, you know, there are people and, uh, uh, and uh, the, the, these are real problems. But of course, it's very, very difficult because uh, the voters don't really uh, like that. <laughs> so, Okay. There is one last question in the room here, and then we will wrap up the session. Thank you very much. My name is Paul Friesvo. I'm an advisor to the Federation of Norwegian Industries here in Brussels. Allow me to uh, ask uh, Mrs. Kallas and the representative from Angora and Energy Vendor a more um, smaller question, because we have a major problem with the, what's called guarantees of origin, which allows 
old renewable energy certificates be sold and flooded into the market without any physical link to consumption. This is a real problem for European consumers as it le leads to greenwashing. Now, in consideration of the current uh, uh, deliberation of the Renewable Directive, I allow myself to ask Mrs. Callas the question of how um, the ITRI committee is looking at this question and indeed how the German government uh, views on this. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, so uh, this is the last answer. Again, it's for Kaya and uh, Matthias. So Kaya, on guarantees of origin. I'm sorry uh, that I can't answer this uh, um, with uh, certainty because I'm not really working on the Renewables Energy Directive as it is a different uh, uh, team and we haven't really discussed this, uh, uh, this issue so thoroughly in the committee. So, so I can't say what is the view and, and we definitely um, uh, don't, have, uh, don't have the outcome yet. So, but but I, I know the worry. I, I've, I've listened to the concern, yes. So... Matthias, is this a German national issue? So there, there is an interest by consumers to um, be certain that the electricity, if they buy green electricity, it is green electricity. It, that is very clear. So there, there is some um, real interest in having um, guarantees of origin systems that are credible. That's one side. And I believe this, this is widely supported also by the consumer associations. And I, I do believe that the recast of the Renewable Energy Directive will uh, push into that direction. The second uh, aspect is, uh, do we use guarantees of origin systems to pay for renewables coming to the market? And there is a lot of resistance against this, particularly on the council side, and I don't see this moving forward. Okay, so... Um that is the end of this session. I think we brought out some major themes, which is the role of subsidies for renewables and why they might be needed for some time yet, the importance of energy efficiency on both a small scale and a large scale, the very controversial issue of emission performance standards for power plants and the whole elements of trying to get higher carbon power generation capacity out of the system and how you do that without perhaps putting people out of work. So these are all issues that will continue to be um, strongly debated, I think, uh, for the next, for next few years. So uh, I would just like to uh, thank the panel. And um, you heard, obviously, we touched on the emissions trading system in this session. Uh, you should stay on after the coffee break because at 12.30, there's going to be the next session, which is what price for a greener future. And I think you'll be able to talk a lot about the ETS in that session. Thank you very much. <laughs>